0: Good morning I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 so we continue our series in the gospel I, uh, we got a lot to cover over these next 90 minutes so I just want to get going so I'll make sure y'all are awake it's good but uh, our passage this morning is going to be in verses 14 through 31. And that's going to kind of divide up into two different sections. So it's going to feel a little bit like like two different sermons. The first section is verses 14 through 18. And then the second section will be verses 19 through 31. And as we come to verse 14, Jesus is continuing to talk about money, which is something he did quite a bit. So we shouldn't be that surprised. Um, In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Pastor John MacArthur writes these words. It says, 16 of the 38 parables of Jesus deal with money. One out of 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. Scripture offers about 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money. The believer's attitude towards money and possessions is determinative. Now, as Roger mentioned in his sermon last week, Jesus is not anti-money. Jesus is not anti-wealth. As a matter of fact, I, I don't even think a lot of times he's really even focusing on money. The issue is allegiance. It's an issue of allegiance. We see that in verse 13, which was the last verse of the sermon last week, where Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth you can't do it and yet this is exactly what so many christians and our culture strive to do and it's exactly what many of the religious leaders in jesus's day and age tried to do including the pharisees and so that's why we come to verse 14 It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So they hear Jesus' teaching on allegiance and on money, and and they're just not excited about it. And and I don't blame them because they've got a major philosophical divide going on right here. Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. And yet the Pharisees came from the perspective that because we serve God, he gives us money. So we have a major philosophical divide here. What Jesus saw as a conflict between the two, the Pharisees saw that confirmation that the two were actually linked. And so that's why in verse 15, Jesus now moves to rebuke them. And he says, you are those... Who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Jesus is saying, you guys think because people celebrate you, that God is pleased with you. You guys think that because culture values wealth and you have some money, that therefore God is pleased with you. And and he's saying that's that's not right. Not so fast. God is not necessarily pleased with you. The praise of man is not the best indicator about whether or not God is excited about what you're doing. And he's never pleased with spiritual pride. And so as I read this this week and as I was studying, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, it impacted me pretty good because... It's a great reminder for all of us. It's a great reminder for all of us that we don't confuse the things that culture promotes with things that Christ affirms. We cannot confuse the things that our culture celebrates as that which Christ celebrates. And let me be clear, I'm not just talking about culture out there. I'm not just talking about pop culture. I'm not just talking about the movies coming out of Hollywood. I mean, it's really easy to look at that and say, oh, man, they're so degenerate, reprobate. I mean, that, that culture's terrible. Yeah, Christ does not affirm that. I want, I want to talk about maybe American Christian culture. Or maybe even church culture. Every culture has issues. Every culture, in some ways, is broken. That, is broken, And because of that, every culture has to be examined under the truth of God. Period. I mean, I was reminded of this yesterday. I was, I was talking to my mother on the phone. And she reminded me that she went to a segregated school growing up in East Texas until she was in sixth grade. And I, I'm, I'm 36 years old. And so it is, I'm just completely honest, it is hard for me to fathom that. Like that is really difficult for me to even process that, that was a thing. And that, that's just in my mother's lifetime, right? And, and as, as ridiculous as that is, what is maybe more horrific is that you can do research. There's been dissertations written about this, about sermons that were being preached in the South during that time that completely affirmed the validity of segregation and championed the idea that that the races were unequal. championed racism from the pulpit. And many of these pastors were celebrated, and that teaching was celebrated by the congregation. You know, just because something is esteemed by the culture around you, doesn't make it right no matter the culture. No matter the culture. And I find that, I don't know, terrifying. (laughs) Because I know I have blind spots. We all have blind spots. And so my prayer is that God would transform us by the power of his spirit. So that we might celebrate that which he celebrates. And we would mourn the things that God mourns. And that we would repent from the things that God despises. And we need the spirit of God to help us in that. And that's Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees here. And after his rebuke in verse 15, it now brings us to verses 16 through 18. Which I just want to warn you. Are kind of, they can be kind of confusing. They, they seem to be somewhat disconnected. So just track with me here, and hopefully we'll, we'll be all right. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So Jesus just told these guys that you are, you are wrong about your view of money, in verse 15. And now he's going to unpack for them that there's going to be some other stuff that they're wrong about as well. He says that the prophets are proclaimed until John. And since that time, it's been the kingdom of God that's been preached. And to understand these verses, the two key words right here are these words. Until John. Until John. See, in many ways, John the Baptist is one of the great pivot people in all of the scriptures. John is is, is, is a hinge in the story of God. He is incredibly important. I mean, even just think about, go back to the chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke where we kicked this series off a year ago. Who's the first person we deal with? Who's the first birth described in the Gospel of Luke? It's John. It's John the Baptist. And Jesus says before him, people proclaim the law and the prophets, what the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. And that's speaking of a coming king. Here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. And then Jesus says, but from John or since John or until John, the message has changed. And now we preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now it's no longer the king is coming. Now it's the king is what? He's here. The king is in our midst. Messiah has come. And so the message changes a little bit. We're we're moving from a time of promise to a time where we're moving towards and into fulfillment. And John is key in that transition. And Jesus says something strange at the end of verse 16, if you look, in regards to the kingdom. He says that everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, what does that mean? Right? There's a a, a couple of different views in regards to what that actually means. But I think the best way to understand it is this. It's that through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, people are repenting and believing and entering in to the kingdom. They're entering in. They're becoming kingdom citizens through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. But it's not easy, because the religious leaders are working in opposition to the message of Christ, and so they're trying to block the, the door. And so these people who are wanting to believe are having to jump the fence, so to speak, to get through. They're having to bust in. They're having to force their way in. And I know that can be a little confusing. So. Let me just illustrate it this way. Um, There's a beautiful church in downtown San Antonio called St. Mark's Episcopal. It's one of the most beautiful churches, one of the most historic churches in our city. And when Victoria and I were were really serious and we were about, you know, ready to get engaged, looking towards marriage, we were downtown one day, St. Mark's is right there, we go, let's go talk to them about getting married here. So we go inside and we, and we meet with the with the people there. We're like, "Hey, we're interested in getting married at St. Mark's. How much does it cost?" They told us what it would cost. I said, "Never mind. We're not interested in getting married at St. Mark's." <laughs> and there was no way. But we both loved it, and I was like, "I got to find a way to make this part of our story." So then I had an idea: I will propose to her at St. Mark's, much cheaper option, right? <laughs> no big deal. So I scooped it out, scoped it out. You know, I devised a plan. Here's the plan. We're going to go to dinner downtown. I'm going to get a carriage ride. I'm going to talk to the carriage driver. He's going to take us by St. Mark's. I'm going to go, oh, my gosh, we're at St. Mark's. Let's get out. And then we'd go into St. Mark's, get engaged, and it would be one of the greatest stories ever told. Unfortunately, I forgot to think through all of the details. Because when I scoped out St. Mark's, I did it at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. When we went on our carriage ride... It was 10 p.m. on a Friday. So that bad boy pulls up to St. Mark's, and there is no one there. It is locked. Lights are off. Completely dark. And I say, oh, it's St. Mark's. Let's get out. Victoria's like, why? Come on, we got to go in. She says, Michael, it's locked. I say, we've got to jump the fence. (laughs) And look, I am a square, okay? I don't, I mean... She's like, what has gotten into you? I go, seriously, we've got to jump the fence. So I climb over the bushes, jump the fence, break into St. Mark's, the courtyard. The courtyard, not in the church, the courtyard. I have Victoria break the law with me. We, we walk quickly to the arch. I get on my knee, ask her to marry me with one eye on her and one eye on any black and whites. You know. She said yes. I made it out of there engaged and with only a third degree misdemeanor. Totally worth it. But I I say that because, and and all kidding aside, this is the picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, you guys are supposed to be the religious leaders. You're supposed to be at the door inviting them in. You're supposed to unlock the gates. You're supposed to be the one saying, come on in. And instead, what you're doing is you've locked up the entire joint. You're doing everything you can to keep people out. But they will not be denied. They're going to go right through you, over you, around you, but they're coming in. They're coming in. They're making their way into the kingdom. Now, Jesus knows that him talking about this and talking about this transition from the law and the prophets to the gospel of the kingdom is going to be pretty confusing. And that many of the religious leaders are probably thinking, okay, so you're saying that the law and the prophets don't matter. Are you saying that the law and the prophets and everything that they said is not going to come true? Is God calling a prophetic audible? And Jesus says, not a chance. No way. Verse 17. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. That's, look at that text again. That is huge. Jesus says, you know what's more likely to happen than my word fail? Do you know what's more likely to happen than the promises of God become void? I'll tell you what's more likely to happen is that the earth and the heavens are going to pass away. That's more likely than the promises of God not coming true. And he's saying that this fulfillment is not some curveball out of left field. This is how it was always going to be. And the problem is not God, and the problem is not the Bible that you're holding, the problem is you. It's you, and you just can't see it. This is not the breaking of God's eternal promise, it's the fruition of it. It's not the breaking of God's law, it's the full fullness expression of it in Christ, and this is why in the next verse, he talks about divorce. Because just on face level, surface level, you look at that and you go, How did? What, did it, what's, what kind of transition is that? Because verse 18 says this. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. I mean, you read that and you go, I'm, what? What's going on here? And I want to say, we're going to come back to verse 18 next week. Roger's going to preach a sermon where we really look at the constellation of verses and what the scripture says about divorce. Okay, so we're really going to unpack that next week. But one of the things we see right here is that Jesus, and what you're going to see, is that Jesus has a higher view of marriage than the law did. He has a higher view. And so kind of much like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling them to a higher standard, a higher law. The fullness of the expression of the greater law, the law of Christ. And so that concludes these verses 14 through 18. And now we transition into kind of a well-known parable of Lazarus and the rich man in verses 19 through 31. And this is where we're going to spend the the rest of our time. In verses 19 through 22, it says, this is Jesus speaking. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living... In splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. So we see that this story, this parable Jesus is saying, it's got two individuals. One is a nameless rich man. He's dressed in purple and fine linen. He lives in splendor all of his days. He's big time, flat out. He's big time. He's high society. He's got the house on the hill, millions of followers on social media. And yet, fascinatingly enough, his name is not mentioned. He's the nameless rich man. But on the other hand, we meet another guy, and his name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is someone who had a a, a very much a, a different experience than the rich man, right? Lazarus is not living in splendor, he's begging at the gate. He's not covered in, in, in he's not covered in fine linen. He's not living in splendor, he's begging at the gate. He's not covered in fine linen, he's covered in painful sores. I mean imagine that. That the dogs come up and lick. I mean, this man is broken. He's not dining with royalty. He's scrapping and clawing and crawling for crumbs. I mean, just a vastly different experience of life. And yet, though these two guys, their earthly experiences couldn't be more opposite, they experience the same end. Because the one thing we find out in verse 22 is that they both die. Spoiler alert, right? Shocking. Death really is the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer. As one author put it, everybody is going to be dead one day. Just give them some time. Right. The truth is everyone lives their life in the shadow of death. Everyone does. Believers and unbelievers alike. That's the curse of the fall. It's the penalty of sin. It's the price we pay. And so while the details of our life and our death may differ, the result and the reality of it it does not. Which is that death comes. But after death, something happens to these guys that would be hard for Jesus' listeners to believe. Like hard to fathom. Kind of like the prodigal son. He's reeled to man. He's talked about these two guys. And here's the great reveal. And Jesus says, these guys switch places. They swap. The rich man goes to Hades, literally hell. And Lazarus finds himself in Abraham's bosom, a euphemism for heaven. And now, once again, their experiences are drastically different. We see that in verses 23 through 26. It says, In Hades he, is the rich man, lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. This is devastating, guys. The man who had it all is now the one begging. And Abraham's response is it's too late. What's done is done. And, and one quick aside that I want to make clear. The rich man is not in hell because he's rich. And Lazarus is not in Abraham's bosom because he's poor. Remember what Jesus is emphasizing here. Remember what he's teaching in this parable. Privilege and prestige in this life are not a guarantee of privilege and prestige in the next. That's the point. That privilege in this life does not mean a direct line to privilege and prestige in the next life. That's not how it works. And this story illustrates that. Now, in a parable like this, sometimes it's a little bit tricky to figure out, okay, how much of this is, like, real? Right? I mean, are are there, like, conversations like this going on? You know, back and forth, Hades and heaven. I mean, how much of this do we take as literally happening? And and my, my take is that it's a parable, that it's illustrating a point, that it's a story but that it makes some big, important points. And whatever the case may be, it does bring up an issue of what theologians call personal eschatology. Now, personal eschatology is not what you personally think about eschatology. That's not personal eschatology. Personal eschatology is what do Christians believe happens when we die. What happens to you when you die? That's personal eschatology. You see, because every worldview, in the end, has to answer four major questions. And you've heard me talk about this before. It has to answer the question of origin. Where am I from? It has to answer the question of purpose. Why am I here? It has to answer the question of morality. How shall I live? And it has to answer the question of destiny, what happens when I die? As you talk to people, I would really encourage you to use those. Because it's going it's to reveal to you where they're coming from. Okay? Origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. What happens when I die? And that's what personal eschatology seeks to answer. And I want to take some time and talk about this because it has been my sense that there's quite a bit of confusion in this area, even amongst the saints. And and that's understandably so because there's not a lot in Scripture. There's not a ton of stuff in Scripture that talks about it. So, sometimes people have filled in the blanks in strange ways. But that being said, the scriptures are not silent on this. So, I want to give you four truths of personal eschatology, four things that I think you can hang your hat on. And the first of these is this: Upon death, the Christian goes to a bodiless existence in heaven. We are body and soul, okay? And when we pass, when we perish on this earth, our body remains here and our soul departs and goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And we find this in a number of places, most notably in in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body And to be at home with the Lord. He says something very similar in Philippians 1. So the idea is that when I leave my earthly body, when I die, I'm going to heaven, my body's staying here. And I'm in heaven with the Lord. And this brings us to number two. And I want to hammer this point. Because I think this is maybe the most the biggest mistake. The believer's time in heaven is temporary. It is temporary. It is temporary. It is temporary. Because I talk to so many Christians who think that heaven is their ultimate destiny. That the the end deal is that I am in heaven. And I am not here to denigrate heaven. I think heaven will be wonderful. I can't wait if the Lord tarries. But heaven is not your eternal home. Earth is. Earth is. Not heaven. I liken heaven to connecting on a long flight. This may be a terrible analogy. (laughs) Like you're flying from San Antonio to Paris, but there's no direct flight, so you go to Houston first. I flew that illustration by Pastor Jason, and he was like, dude, you cannot compare heaven to Houston. (laughs) And he's right. So imagine College Station had this huge international... (laughs) Airport, you know? But the point is is that heaven is not the final destination for believers. We are body and soul. And so our destiny is not as a disembodied spirit. Our destiny is as a resurrected saint. So number one. When you die, you go to a bodiless existence, a wonderful existence in heaven. Number two, that time is temporary. Number three, those in heaven await, anxiously await, the future resurrection of which Christ is the first fruit. The great chapter on the resurrection in the scriptures is 1 Corinthians 15. When you get to verse 50, this is what Paul writes. It says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. It's called the translation. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, excuse me, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death where is your, oh death? Where's your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? This text is not describing what happens when we die and go to heaven. This passage is describing what happens when we come leave heaven and come to earth, or in the resurrection when we are lifted up and return in our new glorified bodies, of which Christ is the first fruit in the resurrection. The hope of the Christian is the resurrection. That is the promise of which Christ is the first fruit. So, when you die bodiless existence in heaven, that existence is temporary because you're anxiously awaiting the resurrection. And then, number four, our ultimate destiny is to reign with Christ on earth. And that's how the Bible ends, my friends. That's Revelation 20 through 22. So if you think of the Bible, it's amazing. In Genesis 1, we have the garden where God is there dwelling in the midst of his people. And all is as it should be. And then in Revelation 20 and Revelation through 22, God is there in the midst of a recreated Eden. And he's in the midst of his people and there is no sin, and there is no heartache. It's a return to Eden. So if you think of the scriptures, if you think of the story of the Bible, it's a paradise that was created, a paradise that was lost, a paradise that was promised to return, and we yearn for that paradise. We cannot help it as humans, for God has placed eternity in our hearts. That is why C.S. Lewis, the great quote, Lewis writes, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. It's a paradise lost. It's a paradise promised. It's a paradise yearned for. And it's a paradise secured and brought about through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the scriptures. And it's our hope in the resurrection and the Bible ends with God in the midst of his people. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light." And they will reign forever and ever. It's The last chapter of the Bible. It's powerful. That is our hope. It's in the resurrection. And let me say one more thing before we move on. Because I know, I know many of you or a number of you have some type of Roman Catholic background. And because of that, you've been exposed to, to teachings on, on this thing called purgatory. And I am not here to denigrate Catholicism, but this is a question a lot of people have, so I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on with this idea of purgatory, and the idea with purgatory is that this is a place that Christians go to, okay, so it's believers, and they go there after death to have remaining sin removed from them. Okay, so think of it as a, a, a process of purification that's brought about through suffering before entrance into heaven. They've got to go to purgatory to take a spiritual shower. All right? That's the idea behind purgatory. But I think, I, I think there are real problems with that. And the first one is what I've read to you in 2 Corinthians 5 or in Philippians 1. I think that the better understanding of Scripture is that we, when we are absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. That we go. So I think there's a biblical problem with it, but even more so, and I want to be sensitive in how I say this, but I think that it it demeans Christ's work on the cross. Because if there is if there's a place I need to go to take care of remaining sin, then that means that Christ did not truly take care of my sin. Does that make sense? Like, if there's a place I've got to go to to get my extra sin removed, then Christ did not take all of my sin. And when he says, to Tetelestai, when he says, it is finished, when he says, paid in full, the reality is that it's not. It's not. And that there's more work to be done. So in summary, personal eschatology. When the saint dies, he goes to a bodiless existence in heaven which is glorious and wonderful and beautiful. But it is temporary because he's awaiting his glorious resurrection when body and soul are reunited and he comes to reign with Christ forever and ever. Amen. Finally, in verses 27 through 31, we have the final section of the parable. It says, and he said to the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Fascinating interaction. The guy says, can Abraham touch my tongue? Abraham says, too late. The guy says, okay, it's too late for me, but send him to my family. Like, warn them. And Abraham says, too late. But then on top of that, he says, they wouldn't even believe if I did. See, we oftentimes think that the evidence is we don't have enough evidence. But the reality is there were people who saw Jesus do miracles. There were people who walked with him who did not believe. So the issue is not evidence. The issue is something deeper than that. Now, in closing, this is really a pretty sad parable, isn't it? I mean, it's a riches to rag story. This guy wasted his life and experienced eternal consequences because of it. And that's sad. And... and, I think something that sums it up well is I read a devotional this week. And at the end of the devotional, this is, this is what it said. It was a story about a politician named Charles Francis Adams. He was the son of John Quincy Adams. Famous politician, famous diplomat, and a guy who kept like a really substantial diary. And so after his death, they found his diary. And one of the, one of the listings in his diary, one of the entries said this. Went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. Then they found his son's diary, because he happened to keep one like his dad. And this is what his said. Went fishing with my father today, the most wonderful day of my life. The devotional closed with these words. It said, the father thought he was wasting his time while fishing with his son, but his son saw it as an investment. The only way to tell the difference between wasting and investing is to know your purpose in life and then to judge accordingly. The rich man wasted his life not because he was rich, but because he invested his life in all the wrong things. So wayside... As we leave today, let's let's remember a couple things. Number one, we get one life to live. I mean, that's it. We got one shot at this thing. The only thing that's guaranteed to us is that our body is going to break down. And the only thing that's guaranteed is there are no guarantees in that regard. Our bodies will break down. And so my encouragement for us is know your purpose. Know your destiny. And then invest wisely. Invest wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for our time together this morning. God, we thank you that you remind us by the power of your spirit through, the, through the, your word of the hope that we have in Christ the first fruit of the resurrection, the one in whom life is found. And God, that even though we live in the shadow of death, we can walk in faith and without fear and in hope because the tomb was empty. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We yearn for that day when we are with you in perfection. In our glorified bodies, where there is no more pain. And God, that is true for the saint. And I also thank you for your warning this morning through the story. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who says, The one I resonate with in that story is not Lazarus, it's the rich man. And it may be because of a squandering of wealth, but it also may just be because you're investing in the wrong things. And so, God, I pray if we have anybody here this morning that's in that place, that you would give them eyes to see who you truly are, their creator and their redeemer. And that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin has left us in separation and death. But by your great love, you came to rescue us. And you took on flesh as our Lord, Jesus Christ. You lived a perfect life, willingly going to the cross, where you died for our sins, but you weren't just a great man or a moral teacher because on the third day you rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and inviting us to a relationship of beauty and eternal joy with you. If we will receive this gift by faith, trust in you for the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray, amen.